Um, so now, having um, gone through the solas, kind of the, the heart of our gospel of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that scripture alone is what we look to for the source of authority. Now we are getting into, over the next couple of weeks, um, the shape of our worship service, not merely for itself, but for the way in which the truth of the gospel and the teachings of the faith are conveyed through the very shape of our worship itself. And so we're going to start to talk about today. Today I'll kind of introduce how we understand worship and then um, get into one particular part of it. Um, before I do, is that, does the sound going to be too bad for you guys from the other room or is that okay? They're having another meeting in there. So we'll do our best. Okay. Very good. Well then, just briefly, uh, previously on Roots of Faith, again, we're starting out with this perspective that we need roots. We don't want to be rootless and that the church is a church of roots. We talked in the first week about sola gratia and how it pushes back against that innate sinful human urge to think work can make you free, make you acceptable to God. To the contrary, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. For those who have nothing, God gives everything. Week two, we talked about sola scriptura, and how scripture is our final source and norm. We still use reason and experience and emotion and tradition, but we just keep those things in their subordinate place to um, the scriptures. And then last week, Sola Fide, we talked about how we can't do nothing apart from Jesus, that he is the vine, we are the branches, we draw all of our life from him. So then now we're going to dig into what in fancy terms, we don't use it too much, but in our Lutheran tradition in particular, we refer to worship as the divine service. The divine service. We'll talk about why that is. But before we do, just a basic question that undergirds our whole view and understanding of worship, which is, does God need anything from us? Not a trick question. Like, does God need anything from us? What do you think? No. I mean, sometimes people will say, well, he needs our praise. He needs our worship. He needs us to do these things. But in point of fact, no, no. <laughs> like, God is perfectly satisfied within himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the heart of all reality is a perfect communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, he doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need our worship. Does he delight in it? Sure. Does he rejoice in it? Absolutely. Does he need it? No. This is important because when we think about worship and how to understand worship, if we come to it from this perspective like God is in heaven kind of twiddling his God fingers and hoping that humans offer him some praise, then we're going to start to have a distorted view of it. And what does that distorted view look like? Well, to use that, I like to think of, we lived in St. Louis, throw into seminary. We lived there for a number of years. And, um, of course, this is the, the arch, St. Louis arch. Any of you guys ever been up in it? You've been underneath of it. Yeah, ditto. You can actually go up in it. And there's like a little egg-shaped elevator that you go into. And it's like a um, roller coaster. You know, uh, you're on a roller coaster. It's like... And while we were living in St. Louis, I remember at one point it broke down and like it didn't go tumbling to their death or anything like that. But it was, they were just stuck in their little egg elevator for four hours until finally they could, can you imagine like claustrophobia much? But, ah, uh, no, there's windows up at the top, but not, not while you're in there. Okay. But anyway, I use this as, um, not because of anything about St. Louis of the Arch per se, but because this is um, from your, if you remember your math, I don't know if it's algebra or geometry, what shape is that? There we go, thank you. What, what is that? Is it geometry, algebra? Both, okay. It's a parabola, right? Okay, and so I think um, uh, the conventional view of worship pictures us as down here. We're down here on earth. And there's God up in the heavens. And what we need to do is we need to offer up to him our prayers. We need to offer up to him our praise. We need to offer up to him our works. We, we send those things up to heaven and we, on a wish and a prayer, we hope that he hears it, receives it, is favorably disposed toward us because of it. And then if he is, 
he responds and sends back down his, his blessings, his answered prayers, his grace, his forgiveness, etc. But it starts with us. It starts from us, and then we go up to him. So this conventional view of worship then is essentially, I think I've got this in your handout, what we do for God. Okay? The conventional view of worship is what we do for God. Now, would people articulate it this way? Uh, not commonly, I don't think. Um, but there's this implicit understanding that worship is about us doing something for God, trying to get his attention up there. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but it's a very pagan view. From the ancient Greeks, this is how, kind of how they viewed the gods, is that the gods are just sort of inattentive to the plight of humanity. But you can get their attention with some good incense. Right? You can get their attention if you offer the right sacrifices, if you sacrifice enough animals or what have you. Then they'll start to pay attention. But otherwise, they're just kind of doing their own God's thing. Uh, we have a very pagan view of worship when we look at it that way. Like worship is what we do for God to try and get him to look on us, care about us, etc. The biblical view quite literally flips this upside down. Whoa! Again, the extent of my PowerPoint um, machinations there. But the idea now is, okay, just pretend like it, it's stayed and the sky isn't down here. But, but basically, what I mean to express by this, with this upside-down parabola, or perhaps that's the right-side-up parabola, I'm not sure, is that rather from the scripture's perspective, things start, God is the initiator. That God makes the first move. And he comes to us with his word. He comes to us with his promises. He comes to us with his grace and his blessings. And then we, in response to what he has done, what he has said to us, we respond with prayer and praise, obedience. Those are things that flow from what God has already done for us. And so this is the, the biblical view then is of worship. It's fundamentally about what God does for us rather than what we do for him. It's like a, a small, subtle distinction, but one that turns everything upside down. Because when we recognize that it doesn't have to start with me, but that instead it can start with God, and in fact it does, that everything flows from his initiative, from his, his gracious choosing and caring of us, then uh, the pressure's off. Then it's a, just a matter of us living into what he has done for us already. And that's why um, when we talk about worship as divine service it's about the divine serving us worship is fundamentally about receptivity receiving god's gifts receiving god's gifts do you remember last week or two weeks ago um, when i talked about faith and you recall what i said was like the fundamental posture of faith so there's like one gesture and we do it each week in worship even like What's that? But, well, bowing your head, I, I think, in, in many ways is too. But the empty hands, yeah. Just the cupped hands, the empty hands. I think especially of when we receive the Lord's Supper. Um, although sometimes people will do this even when um, we're saying the, the blessing, the benediction. People will be like this. Um, or in prayers and so forth. But um, especially when we come together to receive the Lord's Supper. Those cupped hands, because this is the fundamental posture of faith. And this is what worship is all about. If you want to honor God aright, then receive what he wants to give to you. Right? We worship him, what, not when we're doing amazing feats, exhibiting how much we honor him or worship him. Like He fundamentally wants to be worshipped by us receiving from him. There's a story I love to tell that I heard about Alexander the Great. Remember the emperor of Greco-Roman Empire about around the 300s um, BC, before the time of Jesus. And the story goes that um, Alexander had some minion. I'm not sure what his particular role was in the cabinet of the empire. But he was a guy who had been, you know, a loyal servant for many years. <clears throat> and his daughter was getting married. His daughter was getting married. And so he came to the uh, treasurer of the empire. And he said to the, uh, Alexander's treasurer, he said, Hey, I have you know, served you faithfully for many years and served uh, the great Alexander, and my daughter's to be married, I really want this to be a wonderful wedding, and I'm, I would like a gift to be made in order to make this possible. And the treasurer says, okay, that's reasonable, how much are you thinking? 
and this, this minion, this peon, he says some exorbitant outrageous amount, right? Just to put a number to it, say he says, I, I need $50,000, right, for this. And the treasurer is like, get out of here, go. Be like, I don't want to see your face anymore. It's ridiculous. He's like, please, I, you know, I've, I've served him, and I, I know he's so, so generous, please. And the treasurer's like, listen, it's not going to happen, but I'll go and ask the emperor. But just so you know, when I go ask him, he might be so mad that he might just, you know, lop off your head right now. It's like, okay, okay, but thank you. Please just go ask him. So treasurer goes, asks Alexander, says, sir, I'm so sorry even to bring this to your attention, but, you know, this, this minion, this longtime servant, like we gave him all the, uh, you know, the paperweights and everything through the years. He's, been, you know, he's got all his 50 years of service or whatever it is. <clears throat> his daughter's getting married. And, sir, I'm very sorry to bring this up to you, but he says that he wants $50,000 for his daughter's wedding. I know that we, we can't, we won't give it to him, but I just, I said I would bring it to you, so here it is. If you want him dead, like, let me know, we can do that. And Alexander's like, give it to him. And he's like, wait, what? It's like, yes, give it to him. Sir, that's outrageous. This is, this is the, what kind of precedent is that setting? What is that? He says, Alexander says, listen, listen. Don't you see how this man honors me? He believes that I am both wealthy and generous. Nothing could honor me better. And when we come before the Lord with empty hands simply to receive from Him, we honor Him aright because we believe that He is both wealthy and generous, right? That He wants to hear from us and that we believe that He actually can do something about it. Let's go to uh, one of my favorite stories from the Gospels in Luke chapter 10 see how this plays out. The story of Martha and Mary strikes fear in the heart of every preacher's boots because you can't read it and preach on it without getting in trouble with the church ladies. <laughs> Luke chapter 10, verse 38. All right, it says, Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So, I mean, we read that story, and the reason it gets us into trouble is because we naturally kind of sympathize with Martha, right? Like, somebody's, somebody's got to get the turkey on the table, right? Like, somebody's got to make sure that this place isn't a, a mess. And here's Mary, and Mary is doing nothing. She's sitting on her tuchus. Martha's singing, I'd love to do that too. Isn't that nice? You know, we should all be so lucky, Mary sitting at the Lord's feet. But somebody has got to make sure that this place is ready. Jesus, I know that you'll take my side. Now, would you go please tell Mary that she needs to come and help me? Now, where, where do you think Martha has gone wrong here? How has she gone off base? What is about that response that just is not quite right? If there was a correction to be made, he doesn't need to tell. Oh, her. that's a good point. You yeah. Need to tell her. Yeah, right. To go tell her, yeah. this other person to do something. Right. Like uh, you, you're, you don't need to boss Jesus around and tell him to go and do your dirty work. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. What else? I mean, is it wrong to serve? Is it wrong to do things? No. I mean, church isn't going to stay open very long if we don't have volunteers, people who are willing to to help out to serve. So, what what's the nature of the problem then here? Okay, good. That's a good word. And, yeah. And judging somebody else's way of sure. worship. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah. You serve this way, she serves that way. Sure. I don't I'm not to decide who. Yeah, so that com that comparison and looking down on her. Yeah, I think there's that aspect to it. And and also as Linda said, the priorities. What Jesus is trying to to bring her back to is not only does she need to stop looking down on her sister? But also she needs to recognize that she needs to be looking up to her Savior, right? 
that fundamentally what's most important, she says, Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. In other words, one thing. You can only actually have one priority. Uh, I read a book on, that mentioned this. That's kind of a funny thing in English language. Like originally the word priority was only ever in the singular. Because strictly speaking, you can only have one priority. Like what is prior? But of course, as modern Americans who can multitask and we're very busy, important people, um, we're, we're able to say, no, 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 I've got 16 priorities. Everything's important. I, you guys understand this because triage like, is the recognizing. I mean, isn't that the idea? Like, you have to, There's some things you have to prioritize. Um, where, what actually is first, rather than trying to pretend that everything is equally important. We do that. We act that way. But in actual fact, it's, it's not that. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not saying, Martha, that your serving is, is unimportant or even that it's wrong. What I'm saying is, there's one priority. What matters most of all is that you receive from me. What matters more than anything else is what Mary is doing, that you come and just receive my words. That's the, the fundamental posture of, of faith. You notice when Jesus says, and this was in our uh, Dwell Richly reading today, if you guys are following, or yesterday, if you're following along, in Matthew 20, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a mind-blowing statement. The Son of Man, God in the flesh, comes to our world, and he doesn't come and say, all right, serve, you know, wait on me. I'm like Malachi. Like this, like this like, come on, Dad, serve me. Uh, <laughs> no offense, Malachi. You're very cute. You deserve it. But uh, that instead... He comes and he stoops down. I mean, when you think of, think of the Gospels, does any particular moment come to mind other than the crucifixion itself of Jesus and this, this attitude, this posture of service that he does? Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. was washing the disciples' feet, right? When he literally like stoops down with their dirty, nasty feet and washes them. But in so many respects, that's emblematic of his entire life of ministry. He came not to be served, but to serve. That's the, that's the Lord whom we follow. Right? And this, again, is why we, the, the technical fancy term that we'll sometimes use to describe worship is the divine service. Meaning that here, when we gather together for worship, the divine God is serving us. It's not about our service of him, our service for him, but it's about his serving us. This is the point of the Sabbath. Like from the very beginning, God's like, all right, I know that you guys are going to think that you need to just work 24-7 all the time, but I'm going, to, I'm going to have a day. We're going to call this day stop. That's what Sabbath literally means. Stop. All right? So on stop day, you need to stop. Like you need to rest. You need to let me go to work on you. This is what uh, is so important about the Sabbath, why it's, why it's significant. We gather for worship, not so that it's... We can be doing religious things rather than doing work things or doing you know, household chore things, but it's precisely so that we're not doing. It's a time of receiving, of where God is going to work on us rather than us. You following so far? Yes, sir. You have a question in the back? No. <laughs> I, I dispute that. Um, all right. Go ahead, Tons. Yes. Um, in secular terms... Service means uh, doing something for somebody. Sure. Mm -hmm. Many people look at a church service as, oh, I got to go there and I have to do something. Yes. Uh, and having, having that flipped upside down. Yeah. Thing. No, you don't have to do something. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not going to theology ushers. Right, right, right. But, you know. You know, just the secular mm -hmm. way that it's been pushed down on us yeah. is hard to flip. Well, yeah, that's really interesting, Hans. I hadn't thought about this, but you wonder how people hear. We so often talk about, oh, one's your church services or worship service, that maybe there's folks who are burnt out and beat up and they need precisely what God has to offer here, but they're like, golly, I'm like, I just need a break. And I don't know if I can do one more service thing. I, as though it were just like a service project. 
I hadn't thought of it that way, but I bet you there's people for whom they hear it that, and they're like, uh, church service, like, I, I just need to rest. And it's like, that's actually the proclamation, the declaration. Jesus is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But that's good. All right, so we need to change that out on the marquee then, right? <laughs> and maybe we do, actually, because t- traditionally, we would not even talk about it as a worship service. We talk about it as Holy Communion. You know, like that's when we come together for Holy Communion, where we're communing with God by receiving his gifts, um, receiving what he has to offer in the word and the sacrament. And I think, you know, it's a more churchly term, but it also is closer to the, the point and maybe counteracts a little bit of that misconception. That's good. Good. Other thoughts or questions so far? This to me was like one of my big aha moments as I was deepening in my own faith and understanding our Lutheran tradition, biblical tradition was like, I, I had very much just, I guess, taken for granted this idea that, well, worship and more broadly the Christian life must be about all things that I'm doing for God, you know, serving God, etc. And then I realized, oh, wait a second. No, it's about God serving me. That's, I, then we serve our neighbors and that's what, well, We'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. But this is, the, this is where we're going. Because what worship does then, what worship is doing, and what God does through it, is that you think of like um, beach glass, okay? Now, this is not Lake Michigan. This is over in the Pacific Ocean. But you have a similar phenomenon over there. There's actually this beach. Um, they call it Glass Beach in Northern California. Anybody heard of this before? It's interesting, the history of it. There used to be a, a garbage dump nearby, where they would just dump, you can just imagine, knowing California today, it's just kind of hilarious to think that this is part of their history, that California, of all places, used to have a landfill on the ocean. Seems like a good idea, where they're just throwing stuff out there. Well, they stopped doing that, but all of this glass and all these things that have been taken out there, over time, breaks, washes up onto the sea, and now there's this whole beach just filled with beach glass, where it's been worn down. I mean, do any of you ever get beach glass out here? Like, yeah. No, it's not around like it used to be. And that's probably a good thing. But, I mean, it's this, these pieces of glass, which broken. I mean, normally, you have a broken glass bottle. Like, it's really dangerous. You don't have anything to do with it, right? It'll um, cut you, no problem. But beach glass is glass that's been worn down, right? The tide and time has slowly shaped it and formed it. Well, in a sense, this is what God is doing over time in worship and just even day to day. He's forming us in faith. He's forming us in faith. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Uh, when I came across, I wrote about it in, in the Inklings, this German term, Eigenzeit, which is, roughly means like the time it takes. It's like the, inherent, the time inherent in a process. Uh, you know, you think of like steeping tea. Or gestating, right? These things, you can't speed it up, right? It's not like your U.S. passport service. Like, can I get an expedited baby, please? You know, nine months is too long. Uh, can I get a five-month one? I'll pay extra. Um, it takes the time it takes. And uh, likewise, I mean, in our being formed and conformed into the likeness of Jesus, it takes time. It takes a lifetime, in fact. It's what God's doing. And he's not in a hurry. He's in no rush, right? But slowly, he's shaping us and forming us. He says, I'm going to have a day each week, Sabbath. It's going to be stop day. Each week, you're going to gather together. You're going to receive my gifts. And on any given week, it might not seem to be all that special or remarkable, right? Same old people, same church coffee, right? <laughs> and yet, in the midst of all of that, over time, imperceptibly he's forming us and shaping us even like that beach glass right that's what he's forming us and i'm going to take the next step then he's forming us in a rhythm any seinfeld fans rachel i know i can count on rachel um so this is elaine bennis who famously did not have any rhythm so her dance Sort of like one of these, right? No rhythm. By contrast, rhythm. All right, you ready for this? 
<laughs> and you just you can't turn away. That's incredible. Okay, but I will. Uh, this is we are being formed, and what are we being formed in? We're being formed in a rhythm, the rhythm of faith, which is a rhythm of receiving and responding, receiving and responding. It doesn't happen once, but it happens weekly. I mean, you can scale it whatever you want. It happens weekly, daily, hourly, yearly. God is forming us in this rhythm of receiving from him and then responding to him, going that back and forth, right? This is the essential rhythm of, of faith. Think again of the upside down uh, parabola, okay? So God comes to us, he speaks to us, he gives to us his gifts of, of forgiveness and life and salvation, and then we respond to him. And how do we respond to him? What are some of the ways that we respond to God and his gifts? Praise, okay? We sing. Rejoice. Really, any, I mean, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. So, yeah, good. We serve others. So when we talk about serving, I definitely don't want you to get the impression like, wow, pastor's against serving. It's not a good look, right? Um, no, that's not the point. The point is that our service is not primary. God's service to us is primary, right? One thing is necessary. We receive from him his divine service to us. And then in response, <coughs> we serve. <coughs> Excuse me. But who do we serve? We serve our neighbor. We serve others. And in so doing, yes, we're serving God. Okay, We're serving the Lord. But he's like, listen, what I want from you is I want you to go out and to bless others, to serve your neighbor. And this is what Martin Luther would so often say. It's like God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Right? I mean, God doesn't need you to be like giving stockpiles of all of your good works, and he's collecting them like people collect baseball cards. So he's like, no, your, your neighbor, like that, that homebound neighbor you have that's super lonely and nobody visits, she's the one who needs your good works, right? Or the, the person who um, doesn't have a, a regular meal and isn't able to prepare it for themselves. They need the person with, who brings the meals on wheels. They need your, your good works, right? Your family, right? The first neighbors you have are the people who share the house with you. They're the neighbor whom God has called you to serve. Like, they need you. Malachi, still not able to feed himself, right? He, right here, Mitch has given us a great example of that kind of service. And some, I bet you, you, you're good dad, so you love to do it. But it's like, even if you weren't happy to do it some days, God's still blessing that and using you, right? Because you're serving others. That flows from having received from him, then we serve. That's the rhythm of faith. Receiving, responding, receiving, responding. Make sense? That's kind of, that's the heart of the whole matter. Everything else flows from that. We get that. If that's like the only thing you get even from this whole, you know, um, eight weeks together, you're doing good. Like that, because that really is like the heart of the gospel and then our life under the gospel. It's about receiving and responding. But since I've got a little bit more time, I want to delve into one application of this from our worship service and then just in our, our teaching. I want to talk about um, one little bit of the liturgy and worship service, the invocation, and along with it, the gift of baptism. All right. Um, actually, let me look at this real quick. I might want to move things around somewhat. Um, I've got some good movie clips. I'm like, oh, how many of these can you guys take here? Well, let's just do a couple. So let's talk about baptism because the way that the worship service starts is it starts with the invocation, okay? It's a Latin word that just means the calling upon the name of, okay? Invocare, in name of. Um, so when we start with the invocation, which is when I stand up, I say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When we do that, that's echoing and alluding to baptism because when um, somebody's baptized, whether it be a baby, a grown-up, doesn't matter, Say, receive the sign of the Holy Cross, both over your forehead and over your heart, to mark, to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. And when we pour the water over their head, we say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So when we start with the invocation as part of our worship service, we're calling back, that's a call back to, to our baptism. Now think about why this is significant in, significant in the context of worship, is we're saying right from the beginning, 
we're starting with God having laid hold on us. We're starting with his naming of us, of his coming down to us. Everything else is going to flow from that, from that response to it. But first and foremost, it's about him naming and claiming us. Sometimes people use that phrase, name it and claim it. They mean it something very different than what I'm saying here, which is he names and claims you and me. It says, you are mine. You, you belong to me. And um, he speaks over us as he spoke over his son. So go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3, and um, Rachel, could I ask you to read for us verses 13 through 17 of Matthew 3? Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Okay, so, you know, familiar story, Jesus coming to be baptized. But what's so profound is to think about now in Christian baptism that we are kind of caught up into this as well. So that as the Father spoke over Jesus, we, in our earlier Bible study today, we looked at Romans 6 and how we're united with Jesus in baptism. So that now the Father speaks over you and me as he spoke over Jesus. And he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says the same thing now over you. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my, my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. That's how the Father feels toward you. That's what he feels about you. He sees you, when he looks at you, he sees you through these kind of Jesus-colored lenses, if you will. That right? now he looks at you and he says, oh, this is my beloved child, whom I love. That's the, the fundamental perspective. An uh, author named Tish Harrison Warren, she wrote a lovely book a couple of years ago called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. And she says in it this, Jesus is eternally beloved by the Father. His every activity unfurls from his identity as the beloved. He loved others, healed others, preached, taught, rebuked, and redeemed, not in order to gain the Father's approval, but out of his rooted certainty in the Father's love. I just, I love that phrase, out of his rooted certainty in the Father's love. Because she points out, just a straightforward observation, that Jesus is baptized and the Father speaks that word of, of belovedness and pleasure over him before Jesus has really done anything, right? I mean, he's... 30 years old, up to this point, he's just lived in obscurity, anonymity, he's been a carpenter, presumably a good carpenter, but he hasn't been out there healing anybody, he hasn't been doing incredible teachings yet, there haven't been any, you know, uh, uh, casting out of demons, any of those sorts of things, we think, now that's some really cool son of God type stuff. Before any of that, straight away, the father says to Jesus, like, well, you're my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased, simply because you are. Everything else flows from that, out of his rooted certainty in the Father's love. And so also for you and me. Everything starts with God first coming to us and his love and his affection uh, for us, not because of anything that we do or fail to do, but because we're his. Like, that's it. And then it's like, all right, you're mine. He says, you're mine. I love you. Nothing can change that. How are you going to live? How are you going to live? It's in response to that. Here's the first then movie clip I want to share. <clears throat> Over there, they're going to be like, what in the world is going on? Um, oh, brother, where art thou? Okay, so uh, this is a great scene. So these guys are three crooks, and they've been uh, on, on the run, but now suddenly they've come across um, this baptism that's happening, mass baptism that's happening down at the river. And one of the characters, Delmar, uh, the guy in the lower right corner there, he's going to go in. Uh, he's, he's moved by the Spirit, you might say, to be baptized. What I want you to listen for is, how does he describe baptism? What's right about it, what's not right about it? So, let's see if I can keep this up.
All right, so you have uh, some interesting takes on baptism there. What's something that you heard in there? You'd say, ah, I'm not so sure about that one. Yeah, Mitch. This is straight and narrow from here. Yes, right, exactly. It's the straight and narrow. Like, um, we have an understanding that, no, we continue to be, as Martin Luther would say, simultaneously saint and sinner. So we'd love for it to be straight and narrow. It's a little bit more crooked than that, right? Still making our way toward the eternal kingdom, but it's not always going to be straight and narrow. Good. Yeah. What else is something you heard that you're like, I'm not so sure that we would say the that. The preacher washed away my yes, sins. Yes. Good. That's a good catch. Yeah. The preacher washed all my sins away. Like, no, he doesn't have that power, that capacity, that authority. But I mean, that can be a, a common misconception, I think. Now, what's something you heard that you're like, okay, he's actually not so far off. There's some good stuff in there too. Anything that you notice? Yeah, Hans? All my sins are washed away, right? Yeah, I mean, when God washes us, he washes us once for all, right? That's not the sort of thing where like, uh, I mean, people have had this understanding through the ages where they're like, okay, once I get baptized, it's going to wash my sins away, but only all the ones that I've committed up till then. And then afterward, like, I'm in trouble, right? And so you have... Uh, in history, we have document, documentation of people who put off their baptism until their deathbed because they're like, well, I want to make sure that I've got as much covered as I possibly can. Constantine was this way, uh, rather than believing and, and trusting that, no, that baptism, it's, it's, it's once for all, right? Sins past, present, and future because it's the application of what Jesus has done and his work is to have redeemed us from all sin. Anything else that you heard that you thought... Oh, it's not so bad. The one line he says, neither God nor man has nothing on me anymore, boys. I'm like, okay, he's almost there. He makes it sound like, now God can't, I've got God over the barrel or something like that. But there's part of me that's like, you know what, that's not so bad. Because there's that moment with um, the Canaanite woman where uh, she's the one that has the demon-possessed daughter. And Jesus is, is talking with her. And you remember, she comes up and she asks Jesus, she's pleading with him, got this daughter, please help. And he just, at first, he ignores her. She keeps going, and the disciples are like, listen, Jesus, will you please just send her away? And the implication is give her what she wants so she'll quit bothering us. And Jesus says, huh? I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she just keeps after it. She keeps, she's begging, pleading. She says, Jesus, Please. And that's when he gives the real, the real kicker. He's like, it's not right to give the, take the children's food and give it to the dogs. It's like, oh, Jesus, really? But then she says, yeah, that's right. And yet even the dogs eat the crumbs from the children's table. And then Jesus is like, ding, 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 ding. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you believe. And it's almost like she's saying, listen, all right, you're right, I'm a, I'm a dog, I don't deserve it, I'm not laying any claim to the food from the table, but I believe, kind of like the story of Alexander, I believe that you are so generous, that you are such a kind and generous Lord, that there's even enough crumbs, all I'm asking for are crumbs, I'm just, give, I'm just looking for some scraps, like my Theo, As Theo hangs around while I'm doing the dishes, he's like, is there just perhaps a little bit left there for me, sir? That's all she wants, but make no mistake, this is what Jesus was looking to hear all along, right? Is he's like, good, you've got me. She's saying, you're generous and wealthy. Yes, exactly, bingo. And Jesus is like, yes, give her what she wants, because that's, that's the, the nature of, of faith. So, yeah, God's got nothing on me anymore. I've, I've got him now because of his promise. It's quite a, quite a thing. All right.
Um, talked about invocation. I'm going to skip through some of this stuff. Um, yeah. To, to say with the invocation, that's number three on, on your handout, we recall who and whose we are. We're remembering and recollecting. That's right. Who am I? I am God's little child. I think I shared this in a sermon not too long ago. This is something that, that Ann taught me. She'd do with, with uh, little kids. Um, they, they would say, God's little child, that's who I am. He loves me so much, I belong to him. With the invocation, we're, we're, and speaking that name of God over us, we're remembering who we are, his child, and whose we are, his child, right? We belong to the three-person God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And um, that when we, when we do, he is placing and planting that name upon us. Sorry. Um, and so just you think about in the scriptures how many times he speaks in these terms of importance of the name. Go back to Exodus 20. Every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I'll come to you and bless you. Of course, Jesus in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered into my name, there am I among them. And as we say, divine service worship begins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now this is where there's kind of a, uh, a, an option. Uh, it's sort of a liturgical choose-your-own-adventure um, to make the sign of the cross. And I teach this to our, our confirmation kids. And for some people, they come out of a, uh, a tradition and a background where they think, well, making the sign of the cross is just, quote-unquote, too Catholic. Um, you know, I talk about how growing up my dad was Catholic, my mom was Lutheran, and really I couldn't tell a whole lot of difference from my kid perspective. Between the two churches, you stand up, you sit down, some guy up front says something, you say something back. Well, it's basically the same thing. Only thing I could notice that was different was that my dad's Catholic church, everybody makes the sign of the cross. My mom's Lutheran church, nobody did it. I was kind of surprised to find out later on that in fact among Lutherans it's not uncommon to make the sign of the cross, and that there's actually... Not only is there not anything wrong with it, but it could be a really good thing. And that Luther himself says um, in the small catechism, he says, when you wake up in the morning, first thing you do, make the sign of the Holy Cross. Say to our Father and kind of go from there. Um, so I wanted to just, in case it's something you haven't done before, people feel like, oh, I, can I make sure I do it right? And, okay, so I'm going to give you a little tutorial here, how to make the sign of the cross. And once again, for visual learners, I made it very crude. <laughs> Here's how it goes. So you start out, first of all, um, as I tell the kids, you, you have three fingers, of course, for Trinity, right? So you have your thumb, pointer, middle finger, put those together like so. You touch your forehead, you say, in the name of the Father. And people will give different kind of symbolisms to that. Why the, why the forehead, that it's the, it's the top and God is the head. You can play with that however you like. I, I've never heard any like specific explanation. Suffice it to say, you start the forehead in the name of the Father, then you touch your chest, and of the Son, and then your uh, right shoulder, and of the Holy, and the left shoulder, Spirit. Okay? So in full motion, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I always get asked at that point, like if for people maybe who did come out of a Catholic background, they say, well, that looks right, except I would always do it left shoulder first, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And there isn't a right answer like, okay, one is better than the other. But historically, this is just kind of how Luther would roll, where they were like at the Reformation, hey, we're still going to do the sign of the cross because we think this is a good practice and it can be helpful for people in their faith. But we're going to switch shoulders, which one goes first, because we're not going to do it exactly the same as the Catholics. <laughs> That's just kind of like the Lutheran MO. Like we're going to tweak it just a little bit. So whether you do left shoulder, right shoulder first, it doesn't matter. No, but let's do it together here. Take your three fingers, okay? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And it's a way of kind of like, when we hear that name, we're applying it to ourselves. And of, of saying, yes, that name is upon me. And so, um, I should have grabbed a worship folder, but if you notice in the worship folder, in the hymnal, you got one there. So, um, here, when you're looking at it and kind of following along, You'll notice that sometimes there's a, a little cross um, in there. So like with the invocation at the beginning, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Anywhere where you see that cross, it's a place that it's appropriate to make the sign of the cross. It's kind of like a way that you're appropriating that word for yourself. Like I hear it, I believe it, I'm holding on to it. See? 
So it shows up there at the invocation. Um, it shows up again. Let me see. I believe with the um, confession of the of the creed. So yes. So at the end of the creed, I love it. That's great. So um, you know, and the life everlasting. So make it there again, saying that's a promise that I believe belongs to me. And then again at the end with the benediction. Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine on you, be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Okay? So when you, when you see that, am I making the sign of the cross up there? It's an appropriate time. And many people in our congregation do it. And maybe you've noticed that already. So nothing that you have to do. This is not a, a law like you have to do this, but you certainly may. And I think it's a good practice. Yeah, Jeff. I grew up around the Baptist church. Yeah. So when I come here and people are right. picking the sign of the cross, I don't understand yeah. why exactly or yep. how to do it right. So I'm not going to do it because... I just told you, though. You can't do that no, excuse no, anymore. I'm before, <laughs> before, I, I wasn't going to do it because I didn't know how to do it. Sure, right. yeah. And no. like, it's just... I mean, I have a notion of what it was for and what yeah. it's about, but like... Obviously, that's an important thing, and I want to do it wrong in defense of it. Sure, right. That's, that's fair enough. I appreciate you um, being thoughtful about it. Yeah, I mean, it's fundamentally about just naming and claiming th- that name on ourselves. Like, God has put that name on me, and I own it. So I make that sign of the cross. It's remembering that. And, of course, like anything else, it can be used in more of a superstitious sort of way, right? Like, I'm a big baseball fan, and, you know, baseball playoffs are going on right now. And so sometimes guys come up to the plate, and, you know, they make the sign of the cross like 16 times, and then they, yeah, it's, it's like a superstitious sort of thing. And that's not the idea. The idea is that it's just a way that we are owning that declaration that God has made over us, that his name is on us. We belong to him. And so I do have one more movie clip. This is maybe my, my favorite one to share from a movie that I've seen, I don't know how many times, Toy Story. The first one. Um, and notice the function in this, in this brief clip. So what's happening here is, oh, I forget what the guy, he's the, he's the bad guy. Sid. Sid, yeah, that's right. So Sid has uh, Woody and Buzz Lightyear trapped. And so it's kind of this moment, this is just the bottoming out where they're ready to just give up and everything. And notice what changes for them and what causes them to suddenly have a, a realization that they need to keep fighting.
So you see right there that moment. I mean, it's just incredible animation, even 25 years ago now. But you see that moment of, of realization. What is, what's he realizing right there? Did you see what, what did he... He's been claimed. He's been claimed. Did you notice what was on the bottom of his foot? Andy, right? It's the boy that, that owns it. And it's almost like this kind of sign of the cross type moment when he touches his foot, sees that name, and he remembers, oh yeah, I'm Andy's toy. I've been claimed. I belong to him. This is kind of what I'm talking about with the invocation, with remembering our baptism. It's recollecting who and whose we are, right? You, you do that. We make that sign of the cross. It's like Buzz Lightyear touching the bottom of his boot <laughs> and remembering, oh yeah, that's right. I've been claimed, right? God Almighty has named me and made me his own child through the, the gift of, of baptism and by faith. Uh, that to me is just such a, a special, precious, precious moment. Thoughts or reflections about that? Toy Story. So good. Pixar. I'm not crying. You're crying. That's everybody. Daddy, why are you crying? <laughs> Don't even get me started on Toy Story 3. <clears throat> so hard. Wrecks me every time. Um, all right. I've got a lot more to say, but I, um, I want to be uh, uh, sensitive to our time here. Let me just, uh, a couple of things I want to say about <clears throat> baptism. Um, yeah. All right. Just uh, a few things. I'm going to go through this briefly. When we talk about baptism, what do we mean by baptism? Well, the simple definition of it is that it's water combined with God's word. Okay? It's like water and word together. It's not mere water. It's not just God's word. But God has, has seen fit to join this simple material element, the most common element on earth, I believe, um, with his word. This is what Luther says in the small catechism. It's not just plain water, but it's the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. Because that word has power. It's a powerful word. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, the dunamis of God. It's like the dynamite of God. Um, and again, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Okay, So that this word has power. Water, word, baptism, right? So that's what baptism is. What does it give? One way to, to think of that, number five on your handout, is that baptism delivers the fruits of Christ's redemption. What Jesus has won for us by his death and his resurrection, he delivers to us by means of holy baptism, and by his water combined with, with his word. He applies it to us, you might say. So, again, the Catechism says, <clears throat> Baptism works, forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare. I might say that, that seems to be making some pretty heady, exalted claims about baptism. But you have to understand, this goes back to what we were saying in our earlier Bible study, it's not about baptism as such. It's all about Jesus and what Jesus does to us and with us and for us. Um, it's like, again, a marriage, and uh, that he has joined himself to us. He's the divine bridegroom, Ephesians 5, and we are the bride of Christ, okay? So just as when you, I'm getting, so there's young, young Pastor T and Ann, we, she insisted we get the pictures of the golden hour, you know, you get the best life. She was right. Um, anyway, so when you are married, then there's that coming together where now, it's like what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. One way traditionally that we've expressed this is even through your name, right? So the wife takes the, the husband's name. Not always, but commonly this is why. And it's one way that it, it conveys that sense of now we have it in common. Now, an even more modern, up-to-date way to do that is not with your name, but we have joint bank accounts. That's when you know you really mean business, right? What's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. Um, we're on the same cell phone plan now. We're really united. Uh, <clears throat> I have my own Netflix password. So, um, no. Um, <laughs> baptism unites us with Christ so that all he has, all of is his, is now ours. Oh, did he escape? Okay. Um, he has given, given all of these things to us because we've been even clothed with Christ, Galatians 3. Last thought, then. Baptism, what, what it means. What it is, what it gives, what it means. What it means is it's a daily reality now that we live by this reality of being his baptized children. So once more from the catechism, 
says, baptism indicates that the old Adam or the old Eve, that old sinful nature in us, should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires. And that a new man or woman should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Okay? This is again that Romans 6 thing which says, you know, we're day by day, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So that every day when we awake, it's like another day, how can I serve my neighbor, right? How can I put to death my sinful nature and that continued wrestling, that fighting with our old Adam, the old Eve, that, that impulse within us that wants to turn away from God? How can I, we keep that wrestling each and every day. Wake up in the morning. That's why Luther said, first thing you do, wake up in the morning. Still got the crusties in your eyes. Your breath is bad. You're no good to anybody, but you make that sign of the Holy Cross and say, God loves me. I'm his little child. Apart from anything that I don't start the day in a productivity debt that he'll love me, you know, after I've, I've proved myself worthy. No, I'm already beloved by him. And now I'm going to go out into my day, see who can I serve? Who needs a little cup of cool water of his grace and his mercy? It starts from receiving from him his name, receiving from him his gifts, and then responding back to him with lives of service and sacrifice for the sake of others. All right. I just blew through a lot there. Any questions or reflections on that? Yeah, Hans? You talked about sacraments. Yeah. Uh, why do the Catholics have Ooh. seven yeah. different ones of Two. Um, so, yeah, so we, we can discuss that further in, in weeks to come. But the short answer is we'd say uh, our definition of a sacrament is just a promise of God attached to a physical element for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? So I think those three things. So promise of God. So um, we'd say baptism, you've got this promise that Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's a promise. We've got a physical element, of course, water, and, and that is for the forgiveness of sins. If this is kind of our understanding, our definition of sacrament. And again, sacrament as such is not a biblical word, so it's a theological term. It's kind of a shorthand. And if somebody wants to say, well, I think there's more sacraments, I'm not going to, that's not a hill that I'm going to die on. But so Roman Catholics would say that, for instance, marriage is also a sacrament. And they say, well, there's certainly, um, you know, a command and promise of God when it comes to marriage. And it will be fruitful and multiply. And um, that it's, it's going to be a gift. Look at Ephesians 5, which actually uses um, the Greek word mysterion, which then in the Latin translation, this is way more than you need to know or ask, but here it is. Um, the Latin translation became sacramentum. And so, you know, there's an old tradition that the marriage is a sacrament. right there in Ephesians 5. Um, and, you, you know, so you have that promise. Well, your visible element is kind of husband and wife. And, uh, but is it for the forgiveness of sins? Well, no. Um, from a Roman Catholic perspective, um, sacraments have a little bit of a different nuance, too, because it's almost like, it's like a booster shot of grace, right? It's like, okay, I get married, I get confirmed. Each time, it's like I get a little booster shot of God's grace. We'd say it doesn't work that way. Grace is God's posture toward us. It's his unmerited favor toward us. You don't need to like re-up or reboot. It's not like it's leaking some, some grace like the, you know, the oil on my truck and I got to keep refilling it a little bit more, but rather it's, it's there once and for all in Jesus. And so when it comes to the other sacrament that we identify of Holy Communion, it's pretty straightforward. Again, you've got a promise of, of Jesus. This is my body. This is my blood given for you for the forgiveness of sins. You got the material elements, bread and wine. And so we'd say those are the most straightforward. The other ones that Catholics have, other than the three that we've mentioned, communion, baptism, and marriage, there's also confirmation, see the sacrament. Fifth, uh, extreme unction, it's my favorite one. Extreme unction! Also known as last rites. Yeah, I'd say that's a sacrament. Um, ordination, so for priests, so that's like only some people get, get that booster shot. And then one more. I say confirmation. <laughs> Marriage? No, not almsgiving. What's that? Oh, confession. Yep, that's it. Confession, or um, they call the, the the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. Okay. Um, we would say, you know, if you want to call confession and absolution a sacrament, again, no skin off my nose, and, and that's where we don't want to be too um, legalistic about. Well, what's the uh, visible symbol with it? Whatever, but. 
Suffice it to say, we're like, what matters is the words and promises of God. That's what Augustine called baptism and the Lord's Supper, visible words. Visible words. So today we've talked about the visible word of baptism. Next week we'll talk more about the visible word of confession and absolution. And then we'll get into the Lord's Supper as well. So thank you very much, guys, for hanging around and for this conversation. I've enjoyed it, and we'll see you again soon. Take care.